tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio, 93.5 FM in Nelson. Shift Happens is about the shifts. It's about the changes in our lives when we have the courage to step in to the unknown. The show airs every Tuesday from 2 until 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then re-airs on Sunday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. every week. Enjoy the show. There are so many difficult words, and I think the hardest word in America has been the word uh, shit. <laughs> I thought it's easy, that I know what shit means. But it turns out, I didn't know shit. <laughs> I think it's the most complicated word. Like, how can it be, if something is bad, it's shit. If something is really good, it's the shit. I would have never guessed that. <laughs> I, I had to study that shit. <laughs> so important, the article. Like, like if, if, I, if I give shit, if I give shit to you, that means that, uh, that I'm telling you off. But if I give a shit, <laughs> then I care. <laughs> And, and if I take shit, if I take shit, then I accept that you are bullying me. But if I take a shit, I, I take a shit. And, and I learned that my shit is always good and positive, but your shit, his shit, her shit, always bad. Like, I can't deal with her shit. I have to put up with his shit. Clean up your shit. But don't touch my shit. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I learned that, uh, that if somebody says, I have shit to do, it can refer to any activity whatsoever. Any, except one. Actually shitty. <laughs> Nobody says that when they're going to the bathroom. <laughs> Nobody, except me. <laughs> I love to do that. I, I love to do that. Oh, I have to go. I have shit to do. Uh, uh, what are you going to do? I have already told you. <laughs> uh, 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 and then I learned that the, the phrase, and shit, doesn't mean anything. If somebody says, and shit, it, it's nothing. It's just something that you say to make your list sound longer. Like if somebody says, oh, I like to travel and shit. You, you have to know that they only like to travel. And, and to make it even more complicated, shit can be divided into a piece of shit. And that has a completely different meaning. 
a piece of shit is a bad movie, a lousy car, or a person who is being selfish. And the piece of shit can get bigger and bigger, but it can never be the whole shit. Like, like if I'm a piece of shit, I'm being selfish. And if I'm a giant piece of shit, I'm even more selfish. But if I'm the shit, I'm great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, I've been inspired. So I have no idea who that guy was. But I think we fall into the the shit category. I hope so. I really do. Hopefully our music is the shit. And speaking of shit... This song that we're about to play is an oldie but a goodie by the Guess Who. And we'd like to dedicate it to all the women south of the border who love Donald Trump. It's called American Woman. Stay away from me. Enjoy. Shift happens. Flower power hour. Oh, yeah. So um, today we're talking to David Swain of the Altitude Project Community Support Foundation. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, we have uh, we heard about your project through someone who met you in Nepal. So, so really? just... Yeah, so just give me a little background on how you're the one that actually founded this project, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So how did you get interested in the Dupo, uh, Dolpo region of Nepal? Well, um, I guess just to back up a little bit, I've been going to Nepal for, well, this, this year was my 10th trek in Nepal, so... I've seen quite a few different areas of the country from the far east over by Kanchenjunga to the center part of the country um, around the Annapurnas and Manaslu, I've been into the upper Mustang around Dalagiri. But in 2015, we went to the upper Dolpo for the first time. I've been traveling on all of these trips with a fellow out of Nelson, uh, David Gluns, who's a well known photographer in the area. About uh, 2011, he said, why don't you come to Nepal? So I sort of said, why not? And that's how I got started going on these trips. And I've never really looked back. I've been going every year. Anyways, the trip to the Dolpo was new for David. He's, he's been trekking there for decades, really. But he'd never been there. So I, we, I was anxious to go on that trip. It's a fairly remote area. Um, not well-traveled. And it's expensive because there's an extra permit fee per day to travel in the Dolpo region. So that puts a lot of uh, people off, I suppose. So yeah, we went on a 23-day trek through the region in 2015. And uh, on part of our trip, we had a rest day at a village called Salbang. And I needed to see about having a camera battery charged. And so I was asking around if there's any power in the village. And I was told that the school had power. So I went up to the school and uh, asked if I could plug in for a small fee, and they were happy to do that. And I met the school coordinator, 
Pema Wangal and his wife uh, Kunsang Lamo. And over tea, they began to describe the situation at the school. It was originally founded by a woman from Germany. And um, the Germans had just been through on a trek the month before us and gave them some bad news that they were not going to be able to fully fund the school the following year. So they asked if I could help. And I sort of went, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, we, at that point, we just exchanged email addresses and... Uh, uh, we went on our trek the next day, and I, I mostly forgot about it, I suppose. But I got an email from them at New Year's Eve, just wishing me happiness and good health, and can you help dot, dot, dot. So I just decided at that moment that it was a good time to step off the sidelines and see if there was something I could do to help. So I, I gave it a try. I drafted a newsletter or a request for an appeal, really, for funding from friends and friends of friends and sent it out and was surprised and amazed at the response and was able to raise the $13,500 that I was hoping to um, get. And uh, that's how it started, I suppose. Wow. So good kudos for them being willing to ask for help when they needed it. Yeah. Um, that's not uncommon in Nepal. Even traveling in the more well-traveled regions, schools will often have a donation box or someone at the entrance to the village asking tourists if they could, you know, spare a few rupees to help the school. A lot of these schools are partially funded by the government, but grossly underfunded. So you're probably aware that, uh, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary's funded a lot of schools over in the Everest region after he climbed the mountain and... Uh, other people like Sir Doug Scott, the first uh, Brit to climb Everest, has also started a charity there and supports about 40 schools now. So they really do need outside support to make these schools function uh, to a decent level with enough teachers and supplies and so on. So they're not, they're not afraid to ask. Um, they're not rude about it or pushy. It's all very um, genuine and authentic. So I never feel like you're being put in a position where you have to say yes or something. So, Right. So how has this process of becoming involved in this school, um, is, is the Altitude Project uh, only focusing on funding that particular school or do you do other things? Uh, well, the first year we, we funded the school at Saldang and I made, uh, over the winter, I made connections with the German group because I needed to understand, you know, what their involvement was and the history. And during that year, I, I soon learned of two neighboring schools that were also um, short on funding. One at a village called Komas, which is six hours to the east of Saldang. And we had passed through that village in 2015, and the school was, in fact, closed that year. Um, it's a sad tale on that school. It was uh, founded in 2008 by a man from France along with the local Lama, who uh, was very in strong support of having a school built. So they built the school. But two years later, the, the man from France was killed in a tragic accident parasailing at Pokhara. So his daughter tried to keep the funding going for a couple of years, but it just all fell apart. So this is typical, this, and this is what I'm learning, is that funding is somewhat temporary or ephemeral, it seems. Um, 
people come in with good intentions to build schools, but to find ways to fund them on an ongoing basis is challenging. So our goal is to really try and bring some stability there, but you know, it, it depends on support of our donors. This year we're sponsoring four schools for sure and possibly a fifth that we now know doesn't have a sponsor for this year as well. So, Wow. Yeah. What year did you actually start the Altitude Project? Uh, the first year of funding schools was 2016. So this is our fourth year going into 2019. In 2017, we funded um, two schools with, and a, with a minor grant to a third school. In 2018, we funded three schools with a minor grant to a fourth school. <laughs> And, and on it goes. Um, I've visited all of the schools that we um, are helping or supporting. And I know the school coordinators personally. In fact, just back from Nepal in December, and I had a week of meetings in Kathmandu that the schools only operate from April until October. It's simply too cold in the winter months to uh, have a school session. So the school coordinators generally come out and live in Kathmandu for the winter which is convenient for me because I can sit down with them and review the results. They're very good about providing both academic and financial reports. And uh, I work on them with their budgets for the next year. So, you know, it's, uh, it's good that way. It sounds like a lot of your life has become the Altitude Project. Well, it's a portion of my life. I still have a day job that I work at half time, but uh, uh, I guess I've just, decided that I like to be busy and I like to help where I can. So it's easy to want to help people in this part of the world. I, I get way more from this than I can possibly ever give back. So I guess that's the driving force for me is it's just, I've gotten so much. It's changed my own life, my own perspective and, and frankly, my own happiness um, having gone there and spent time with these people. So it's really easy to try and help them. And you're doing a fundraiser at the end of this month with another uh, person from Nepal, Dorji Dolma. Dorji Dolma, also known as Yak Girl. That's the, the book she's written and uh, launched last March. She actually launched it in Nepal and has been on tour pretty much for the whole year um, talking about her book t through the U.S. and in Europe. She lives in the U.S. now. She well, had an unfortunate uh, health issue and had to leave the Dolpo when she was 10 years old and her parents were fortunate to find a Western sponsor that um, took her to the U.S. and got her the life-saving surgeries, four of them actually, that she needed to uh, get healthy. And she now lives with her adopted parents there in Boulder, Colorado. But yeah, we're, we're going to bring her here at the end of January. We've got, uh, I think it's seven speaking events lined up for her. Roslyn, Castlegar, Nelson, Vernon, Kelowna. Um, yeah, so she'll do quite a few author talks. We've got a couple of schools lined up as well. I've been wanting to do a fundraiser or find a way to introduce Altitude Project to a broader audience. And this just seemed like a really good fit. Having someone who is from one of the exact villages where we sponsor a school come in and talk to a crowd about what the place is like and her experience um, being born and spending her early years there. So, and, you know, it'll give me an opportunity to introduce our project at the same time. So it just seemed like a, a good fit. 
We're happy to have her and uh, I haven't met her yet. But interestingly, I've met her sister and her parents in Kathmandu in December. She arranged to have her sister come collect me at the hotel and take me to their parents' house for lunch. <laughs> huh? So it was interesting. Um, we're also we're also showing a film. I should add on Monday, February fourth, yeah. at the Civic Theater. It's a documentary, an award-winning documentary about her brother called The Only Son, which is basically a movie about his dilemma of having grown up in the West, but trying to manage his, the expectations of his parents to move back to the Dopo and inherit the land as the only son, marry a local woman and take up the lifestyle. So a lot of the filming is done in the upper Dopo. I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. In a sense, it seems like it's kind of sad for them that their children have ended up living in the West. Um, I don't, I don't think they see it that way necessarily. Um, a lot of people, well, even for education, the schools we support are all primary schools. They go to grade five or grade six. So if children want to continue their education, they have to go out and to Kathmandu, the capital city. And all of these schools have a hostel in Kathmandu where children from their village live and continue their education. And they have a, you know, a person from the village managing the hostel. So they're safe and comfortable in their own you know, environment and continue their culture there um, to some extent. But yeah, the kids go out. Some will go back, some will not. So um, lots go back as teachers or nurses to help people because the conditions there are just unimaginably harsh to most people in the West, truly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you can't really blame them for not wanting to go back and live their life in that region. You know, I've thought about this and I've, I've had quite a few discussions with uh, people about it. Sociologist, professor from Selkirk College, a retired fellow. We had a long discussion about it, who was on our trek in 2017, actually. Uh, Bert Port, 84 years old, if you can imagine, uh, trekking through the Dopo. So anyways, um, it is, it is a dilemma. There's really nothing wrong with the lifestyle, subsistence farming. If they could be a little more comfortable, things like having running water, perhaps hot water, solar hot water, um, clean water, clean drinking water. There's still an awful lot of illness from contaminated drinking water. And that's one area we're going to move into hopefully this year with another NGO that's uh, affiliated with an NGO here in Canada that is in Nepal. And get some water testing done and uh, hopefully design a system for one school to provide safe drinking water. Their mortality rate there is as high as 50% for children under five. Wow. Georgie's family, her mother had 11 children and she has six that survived, six survived. And up to 25% of mothers die in childbirth uh, still. So there's a lot of things that could be done to improve um, just their, their living standard to make them more comfortable, more healthy, more safe. Because the lifestyle, the place is beautiful. The lifestyle is beautiful, but it's harsh. And um, they just would really benefit from being a little more comfortable. Hmm. But you really enjoy going back there. So what's the appeal? I mean, it, you're obviously slightly privileged when you go back. You're not having to live in such harsh conditions. But nevertheless, you're leaving 
Nelson and Canada, which has got all of the infrastructure and going back to a place where life is very primitive. Yeah, I guess it's an interesting question, but yeah, I love going there. Um, it's the people. The, the place is beautiful. It's a high desert. It's the, the, the hillsides are beautifully colored. Um, there's no trees. It's uh, low scrub brush. Um, beautiful, beautiful country, mountain range after mountain range. And the people are just so genuine and authentic, warm. Um, share anything with you. It's just a delight to be with them. It's a, a very different kind of experience. And and I guess meeting and visiting with people in the West. It's just, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I, I do have a sense of that. I, and I've wondered myself whether in some ways, because of our comfort level in our society, we've lost something in that we've lost that interdependence. Well, interesting. Um, we were interviewed on co-op radio the other morning, Georgie and myself, and she really stressed the importance of community, family uh, as a survival mechanism, really, and how interdependent they are on their own family members, on community members. Um, yeah, it's, they don't have the distractions. They don't have television. They don't have cell phones. They don't have all the distractions that we have. So life is pretty much, uh, what's in front of your face and what's in front of your face are your family and your community looking after animals, planting crops, harvesting crops. They pretty much know what they're going to do every day. They don't have to think about, you know, oh, gee, what will I do tomorrow? They, they know what they're going to do. They're going to be looking after animals or harvesting crops or wandering the hillsides, collecting yak dung for fuel or, you know, it's, it's work every day. And yet it's a, a it's kind of a stress-free life in regard I mean, in relation to the way that we live our lives, we have this comfort level and yet we have a lot of artificial stressors too. Yeah, well, I guess that's one of the, the things that I see when I go there is people that are, I mean, what we would consider desperately poor and yet, you know, family members have died and they're happy. Uh, they're very, very happy people and it shows in their faces. It shows in um, their interactions with us, with each other. So I come back here and, you know, I see how blessed we are and we can live this comfortable life. We can live an excessive life if we choose to. And yet people still, some people have difficulty finding happiness here. So it's a bit, bit of a strange uh, a dichotomy between the two. Yeah, I keep wondering if there's some way that we can learn from one another, they can achieve a, a greater level of comfort and not lose that, um, the beauty of that culture and their interdependence. And we could learn from them how to perhaps approach life differently so that we're not always succumbing to these artificial stresses. Well, I think all of us can make that choice every day. You know, I, I really do. It's, it's a personal decision about how you want to live your life, and what things are important to you. Um, you know, 300 and, you know, every year brings 365 new days to practice kindness. So, Do you feel like uh, that involvement in this project and with the people of Nepal has helped you to live your life in a way that makes you happy? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, not going to say I wasn't happy before. I, I think I've generally been a pretty happy person. But yeah, somehow doing this type of work, I think less about myself and more about others. And that seems to uh, just make more joy in my life somehow. I don't know how to describe it exactly. But it's just uh, easier to be happy when I'm helping other people. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for having some uh, reason partially to uh, to express gratitude in the world, but also to think outside of your own needs. There's something about that that um, makes you generally just more grateful for what you have. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. We, we certainly don't. We have everything we need here in Canada. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I hear people complain about various things, but I just, you know, in my mind, I'm just going, well, those are all first world problems. Those aren't life or death situations. It's just preferences, really. Um, well, I think we should take a quick break just, uh, to hear a piece of music, take a little breather, and we'll be back with the listening audience in a couple minutes. Okay. So, how can people find out about the Altitude Project and what you're up to? Well, I guess the uh, easiest way is to check our website. We've, I've been very, very fortunate to have a, a long-time friend offer to build this website, and she's done such a beautiful job. She's She studied fine art, and uh, you know, honestly, she's a bit homebound now. She had polio as a, as a child, and as she's gotten older, her mobility has uh, decreased. And she just does a wonderful job of our website. And it's just altitudeproject.ca, not .com. .com will take you to a different place, which is in the States and sort of religious-based. Ours has no uh, religious connections whatsoever. But altitudeproject.ca is where you'll find the most information. And from there, we've got, you know, you can send questions um, through that website to us if you want to learn more. And give us the dates of of Dorji's uh, book tour. When is she going to be in Nelson? In in the Nelson, she's going to be at the Nelson Library on Thursday, January 31st at 7 p.m. And she's going to be in Rosalind on January, Wednesday, January 30th at 7 p.m. at the library. And, and Thursday, Thursday is going to be at 11 o'clock at the Muir Peace Center at Selkirk College on Thursday, January 31st. And then you're playing The Only Son at the Civic Theater in Nelson as well. Right. On Monday, February 4th. That's the last day of the tour, actually. We have one school to do in the morning and then the movie event in the evening. And so the movie event is going to be... Um, I'll talk a little bit about Altitude Project. Dorji will talk some about the movie. We've got a couple of short films that we're going to show in advance of the feature film. One is uh, quite a touching film about a young boy from the Upper Dopo who fell off the roof of his house playing with his brothers and broke his arm. And because of the lack of care, medical care, it got badly infected. And by the time they got to another village to see um, a traditional Tibetan doctor called Amchi, he looked at it and said, no, no, it's far too late for our medicine, you have to go to Kathmandu. 
He gave them money and his daughter's address, phone number. Unfortunately, the plane that service area had crashed. So they had to walk and it took them a month to walk to Kathmandu. By the time they got there, his arm had to be amputated. So that's the sad part of the story. The happier part of the story is that we were able to work with the University of Victoria. They have a thing called the Victoria Hand Project where they make um, a mechanical prosthetic. And as it turned out, they, well, they print them on 3D printers. And as it turns out, they had a printer in Kathmandu. And one of their engineers was going there the very next week after we contacted them. So um, things just lined up very quickly on that. And we were able to get this young boy uh, a 3D printed hand in Nepal. And as it turned out, I happened to be there in December for his last fitting at the uh, clinic. So that was a very exciting day for me to see it all come to fruition. So we'll be showing a little five-minute clip of that whole um, episode. Very cool. It's so, so lovely when everybody can pull together and, and make something like that happen. Well, and, you know, we hear so many things on the news that are just not very happy. But I got to say, when you, for me at least, getting out there in the world and making these connections, um, you just see how much good stuff is going on. Like, I've met all these people from Europe that are sponsoring schools, people from Switzerland, people from Germany, people from Sweden. Um, one guy from the U.S. has been running around that part of the country now for about 10 or 12 years, putting in wind and solar systems at schools and monasteries. His little uh, organization is called HimalayaCurrents.org. And he's just a tremendous guy. He's trained people in the region how to install and service these systems and give them, them all the diagnostic equipment they need to maintain them. So yeah, some, some very good things going on out there. And the, the more I sort of uh, stay with it, the more I, more people I come in contact with, the more I learn. And it's just, it's been a really interesting path. <laughs> interesting. Are there other people in the region that are helping you with this project? In which region? Well, in, in our region, like I, I know you have the, the woman helping you with the website. I was just thinking. Yeah, no, we have if, a, yeah, we have a nonprofit society. So of course we have to have a board of directors, small as it might be. So I have one fellow that who's our treasurer who is just really efficient with computers and, um, you know, he, he just takes care of all the donations and issues the receipts. In fact, he gets the receipts out sometimes faster than I can send thank you notes. So. Um, we've got that and we have another fellow as our secretary who's uh, been involved in a number of um, nonprofits and even with the Columbia Basin Trust who, who helps guide us with some ideas as well. But we are growing and there will come a time when we'll be looking for people with uh, additional skill sets that can help us for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking like if people are inspired by what you're doing and want to pitch in, what kinds of skills do you need? Well, I, we could use help with uh, writing. Um, currently, right now, most of the writing that goes on is either myself or Anne, our web designer. Of course, she edits everything I write anyways, but there's just two of us doing that. So, uh, you know, people with good writing skills who are interested in learning what we're doing and uh, helping with that side of it to get the message out would be really helpful uh, for sure. And people with management skills as well. Um, 
as I said, we do all the budgets with the school. So people that understand, you know, a bit about finance and budgeting and so on, that can be helpful. Okay. Yeah, I would say. So uh, one other thing, I, I'm just curious, could you kind of outline for us what it's like for people living in that region? What's their day-to-day -day life like? Ooh, that'd be a better question for Dorji, but I can tell I can tell you what I see. I guess is uh, well, early morning they have to get some kind of a fire going. The fires typically don't burn overnight, and the the main fuel is yak dung, so they have to cook some sort of breakfast. Um, it's subsistence farming. They can't grow many crops there: um, potatoes, barley, and. Uh, Buckwheat are the main crops that grow outside. And one of their main foods is called sampa. You may have heard of that. It's a barley paste, I guess. And it's used in a number of different ways. And of course, butter tea is another popular um, food item. Yak butter? Yak. Yeah, actually, knack, knack butter. I might as well clarify that. Knack is a female yak. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, they make butter. They make cheese. They have goats. They have sheep. So goats are milked, sheep is for wool. They do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, spinning wool and making blankets and clothing. Um, they, they will sell wool into Tibet at, to some extent. Um, What's their housing like? Do they live in stone housing or, or like um, yeah, yurts? No, it's, uh, yeah, the housing, depending on the area where they live, some are built from stone if stone is available. The area um, where we first started at Saldang, it, it doesn't have much stone, so it's basically rammed earth walls um, with flat flat roofs and basically um, willow sticks put across the top with uh, dirt. So one of the issues they're facing these days is uh, climate change, even though they don't know what that is. Uh, we've been experiencing heavy, heavier rainfalls the last few summers. And it, of course, these buildings are not built for heavy rain. So it's been causing some problems for sure. Homes leaking badly and bridges being washed out and across creeks and uh, even, even to the point where some of the fields that they've had to uh, build over time have been washing away. So it, it's a, it's an issue that's coming their way for sure. But yeah, just going back to the day to day, it's just getting up and getting some food, getting out to look after the animals, tending in the fields. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but they don't basic. have, they don't normally have any power, uh, other than if, if that fellow's come along with a wind generator or something. No generators. No, no generators. They have uh, solar light, possibly, and these portable lights that we've been giving them. Um, yeah, no, there's, that's it. Little, most of them now have, thank goodness, have steel stoves from China with proper chimneys. The older generation there before these stoves were put in with better chimneys, most of the older people have COPD from the smoke that was always in the homes. You know, they just had a hole in the roof with an open fire and, um, yeah, so. And they're basically people, living. The older people. Sorry, they're, they're basically living with uh, whatever the ambient temperature is, you know, slightly better inside than outside, but they don't have any heat. No, just the uh, stove. So, yeah, so they, they do, 
you seldom see people walking without a basket. They carry baskets on their back using a tump line over their forehead. And they're always collecting twigs and sticks and yuck, dung. And that's, you know, the fuel that, that they keep them warm and that they cook their food with. So they're always out collecting um, when they're walking. I did, I did want well, to just tell, tell the story about the, uh, in 2017, we trekked that area again. We did a different route, a much harder route, actually. No one had ever done it from our group or even the trekking company that we go with. And no one shall ever do it again either, I must say. <laughs> it was extreme. It was 29 days and we crossed six passes over 5,000 meters. But we came into this one village late in the evening at dusk and I didn't really get much of a look at it at night. Our tents were set up and we had our dinner and climbed into our tents. On these treks, you're usually in bed by 8 or 8.30 and up at 6.30, so it's a lot of sleeping. But somehow the body seems to need the rest anyways. Um, I woke up in the morning, got out of my tent, and there was this young Nepali fellow there, dreadlocks with aviator glasses on, which is sunglasses, which is quite uncommon. And he started asking me if I was from Canada and if I was the sponsor for Saldang. And I said, yes. He said, well, you need to come with me. And I said, well, I really need to go have breakfast. And he said, no, later. <laughs> so he wanted to show me the village wanted to show me the village. So he was a teacher. He is a teacher at the school. So he wanted to take me there first and show me their school, which was beautiful building, stone building with uh, nice timber work on it. Uh, looked like something out of the Swiss Alps, to be honest. And um, it's a uh, boarding school. Children from outlying villages can come and live there if their parents want them to. So very, very good school there. Then he wanted to show me the hospital. And I said, the what? <laughs> because most of these places would be lucky to have a health post with some basic medicines and, you know, maybe staffed with a nurse that, um, you know, has some basic equipment. But no, this was an actual hospital. That's a very small scale hospital. They had an examination room and a couple of observation beds where they could keep people overnight. And diagnostic equipment like uh, blood chemistry analyzers and ultrasound and refrigeration for uh, medicines and vaccines, staffed with a nurse, staffed with a, a lab technician, staffed with a nurse's aide, and sometimes a doctor comes through at different times of the year as well. But again, a beautiful stone building with timber, nice timber work on it. And I'm just scratching my head because there's nothing like this anywhere in the region. Finally, I sort of said, so, you know, what's going on here? Like, how does this happen? And they told me the story about uh, a man from the U.S. that first came there in 1978 and then again in 1991. And in 1991, he decided that he was going to help with the revival of that village. And he's been um, helping them build uh, like good concrete dams for their water system for irrigation and concrete irrigation ducts to, to uh, move the water to the fields. He, there's also a Swiss person involved with the, with him who helped them build a cheese factory, an actual cheese factory where they make knack um, cheese. They export 5,000 kilos a year out of there to Europe. Um, anyways, it turned out that this fellow was from the Hyatt Regency. He was the chairman of the board of the Hyatt Regency. So I had to contact him and find out if this was a true story. 
it is in fact a true story. Um, he doesn't really want his name out there, but he's been very generous with me, uh, giving me advice and, and counsel on how I might proceed with what I'm trying to accomplish. So it's been very, very interesting. The nurse that, that, uh, fills that post, she decided at the age of three that she was going to become a midwife when she watched her mother die during childbirth. She's now 29 years old and is a, a fully trained nurse and considering doing her master's degree. So that's an example of how, you know, education uh, can pay back in these places, right? So she went out, got an education. Now she's back in the very village where she was born, um, helping people. She said the hospital last year there served a thousand patients. And I asked her, well, how much does it cost to, to run this place? She said, well, our annual budget's $35,000 a year. I just about fell over. I, we can't even hire a nurse for that price in Canada. So it gives me hope that, you know, we can duplicate something like that over the 5,000 meter pass in the next uh, mountain valley where our schools are. So that, that's a long-term goal for us is to build a better health facility. That's a lovely, lovely story. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck. <laughs> I, well. I really commend you. It sounds like an amazing, fulfilling, and interesting way to spend your life. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm certainly sticking with it. Uh, I had a little question mark after the first year as to whether I would stay with it or not. But that's when my friend Ann sort of jumped in and said, well, I'll build a website. And I just went, well, okay, let's see where this goes. And uh, it's, a, it's been a little bit different than my life in business world where um, I guess trying to map things out and uh, control things a lot more. Whereas I've had, I've had to let this happen and people that want to come and help, um, let them help in ways that they, they can help. It's just a different process than what I'm used to in my business life, I guess. So that's been good for me as well. Just having to let things develop. Allowing. I think it's Allowing. like this, the story of the hand is a perfect example. I mean, reaching out and specifying a need and then having people just kind of materialize and get it done. Well, well, I came home from Nepal in 2017 and I'd met the young boy at the hostel for one of the schools. And I just said to Anne, I said, well, we got to do something for this guy. And within 24 hours, she sent me the link to this Victoria Hand project. And she made contact with him and it just, it just fell together, fell into place very, very quickly. Um, really, really quite a beautiful story, actually. I mean, it's very sad that he lost his arm. The good news is he's had it for about a month now and just got a report that he's extremely happy. He feels normal like other people now. And, you know, he can use this hand to actually pick things up. And so it's, it's been life changing for him to, to have this. I'm looking at pictures of him. His name is Jigme, Jigme uh, in, yeah. in your, um, in your newsletter. That's They're right. Lovely. Yeah. It truly. So, well, yeah. thank you very much, David, for speaking with us. We're going to see if we can talk to Georgie in the next week and uh, hopefully play her interview as well, um, maybe next week, right after yours. Yeah, it, in terms of getting little vignettes about the lifestyle in the Dopo, that's really what her book is all about. So it'll be interesting to uh, hear that from her firsthand. Well, I look forward to, to speaking with her, and um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
So you've been tuned in to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And if you'd like to hear the repeat of this show, it will be on Sunday from 11 till 1. So tell your friends. If you have friends. <laughs> I get a few. And I am a little behind in the podcasting, but we are slowly working our way through past shows. And I will be begin posting those on our website, shifthappens.media. And if you have any questions or comments, who should they contact? Contact.shifthappens at gmail.com is our email address if you'd like to suggest a show or make a comment. And thank you for listening.